This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Sarah Holtz, and we'll be presenting a three-part program about the role of learning history to peacemaking. At the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial in Poland, a quote on the wall of one of the cell blocks reads, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. These words are attributed to George Santayana, and they help explain why the former death camp is still open for public viewing decades after it was shut down. Historical amnesia was a real danger after the Holocaust, and with so many tragedies that have followed, it's still a threat today. On this episode of Peace Talks Radio, Sarah Holtz speaks with three historians who warn against the danger of historical amnesia to peace and conflict resolution. Later from New Orleans, Dr. Jeffrey Derensborg will talk about how the U.S. has a long history of erasing indigenous narratives. Jeffrey will explain how he and his collaborators are choosing to intervene. Also today, we'll hear from Dr. Charles Edel, co-author with Hal Brands of the book, The Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft, and World Order. But to begin our show, we learn about the decline of history majors at American colleges from returning Peace Talks radio guest Mark Wartman. Mark is an historian and award-winning journalist who's written extensively about the Civil War and both World Wars. He draws upon that knowledge in his argument as to why this shortage of young historians may have a larger impact on our collective memory. Welcome to Peace Talks Radio, Mark. Thank you, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. So you wrote an article um, in early 2019 for the Daily Beast, and it was about the decline of history majors in American colleges. I'm wondering if you can give us a synopsis of your argument for that article. Sure. Well, first of all, I was reporting on some statistics that had been analyzed by the American Historical Association, uh, showing that there had been a tremendous fall off in the number of students choosing to major in history in American colleges. Uh, There were about 35,000, 36,000 majors in 2008, and that's down to about 24,000 now. And the rate of decline has, if anything, been speeding up. And the number of majors doesn't seem to be tied to uh, the Great Recession, uh, the financial crisis. Even now, uh, when college majors uh, or college students are graduating to find employment generally pretty easily, no matter what their major, there's continuing to be a decline in history majors. So that was concerning. And then there was a, a sort of interesting and in some ways disturbing counter trend, uh, which is that at some of the nation's most elite colleges, uh, places like Yale, Princeton, Brown, there actually has been a significant rise in the number of history majors. At Yale, for instance, about 10% of students major in history, where nationally it's about 1% of all students. Uh, Brown reported 30% increase in the number of students taking history courses, where at some of the colleges around the country, they're actually eliminating history departments wholesale because there simply isn't enough student interest. So on the one hand, uh, there's this serious fall off in in people who think that they need to study history with any kind of depth. And yet there's also this group that thinks studying history in depth is really important. And I tried to figure out what that meant. So what I think it says is 
that college, where enrollments have actually been increasing, has become viewed as essentially a pathway to a first job. People uh, go to college because they think it's going to lead to employment primarily. In contrast, at these elite uh, colleges and universities where people feel uh, quite secure about their future, they look at college not as a pathway to a first job necessarily, but as college as preparation for career and college as preparation for citizenship and college as preparation for life. And that's become something of a luxury. Uh, and I f- really fear that situation. I think that nobody should be looking at their education as anything less than preparation for life and not merely as a stepping stone into a first job. In what ways do you think um, the study of history does prepare young people for life and for professional work? You know, there's sort of endless number of different ways in which it prepares a young person for for their future life. For one thing, you're reading in depth. Uh, And that can be true for almost any major involving or any courses involving book reading and in-depth reading. You're writing a great deal. You have to analyze facts. You have to look at source documents. You have to put your hands on original materials. You have to have a, a feel for what happened in the past and a sense of historical continuity. And you begin to develop a sense of the complexity of the past, the complications that are there that continue to be present. It's sort of remarkable that I think when we live solely in the present, we tend to see the world in very black and white terms. We tend to uh, ignore the real complexity of things. And when you have the, the opportunity to look into with any kind of depth into history at any stage, you begin to realize just how complicated things are, just how complex things are. And you can start to develop a sort of more strategic outlook on on your own present situation. And uh, I think that gives you much better preparation for citizenship and thinking about what what is going on in our world right now. And if you uh, go into almost any kind of career where you'll be involved in decision-making, it helps you begin to strategize. If you understand how to look at data, how to look at different forces, how to look at different leaders, characters, individuals, and what drives them, then you're going to be in a better position to think about your present situation. Yeah, that's so interesting to me, that idea that learning history can kind of create a gray area for people, whereas that kind of black and white thinking can maybe lead to the historical amnesia that you also discuss in your article. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, America has historically been afflicted. Historically, there you have that term. We as a people tend to have uh, amnesia about our past. Uh, We have had the good fortune as a nation of being remarkably prosperous and successful uh, so that we can often make mistakes in the past and then just move on and leave them behind and forget about them. Some of that has involved blighting the environment and then 
just continuing to move west. Uh, some of it has involved causing harm to foreign nations. You know, when we think about the Vietnam War uh, and what took place there, and that we uh, have been able to uh, move on without really giving consideration to the tragedies that happened there and what what took place there. Uh, you could think about the same thing with slavery and how much we've ignored the plight of African Americans in this society that are a direct outgrowth of 250 years of enslavement. And when we ignore those things, we don't fully comprehend why things are happening in the present. You know, why are other nations sometimes hating the United States? Why do African Americans still feel oppressed? You know, these are questions that we need to be able to answer. In order to answer them, we have to understand the past. I think even if we know nothing about the past, it's still present in us. If we don't understand our past, we're not going to be able to know how to treat our present ills. Absolutely. And um, I know you published a book back in 2016 about the Second World War, and it's called 1941. Could you tell us how you decided to write that book? Sure. Uh, it's actually called 1941, Fighting the Shadow War. Uh, yes, thank you. And uh, has a subtitle of A Divided America in a World at War. And it's about the period leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor and looking at the way in which America was deeply divided about its, what its role should be in the world, while the rest of the world was entirely uh, engulfed in the Second World War. And the U.S. was trying to understand how it should react to this war that was going on in Europe and to this uh, terrifying uh, Nazi power under Adolf Hitler. And the U.S. was actually thinking about its past situation because we, were, we had come through World War I with all of the horrors of the, uh, of the trench warfare that took place there that seemed not to resolve anything. The lesson for that had been that the U.S. would remain neutral no matter what. And sometimes you can take the wrong lessons from the past, but you have to have that debate about the past in order to make your decisions. And the U.S. Uh, was simultaneously going to war under President Franklin Roosevelt while debating what its proper role should be in the world. And I, I found that period incredibly fascinating. Uh, it's a period that uh, surprised me by how many parallels there are with our present. I wasn't quite expecting this when I started out, but the, uh, when the book appeared, it, it struck a chord because there were so many things in it, uh, themes that had resurged into the American mainstream. The term America first, there was the largest anti-war movement in American history up to that point was uh, led by Charles Lindbergh uh, fighting against U.S. intervention on behalf of the British. There was uh, isolationism. There, uh, there was anti-immigration. Uh, there was big questions about whether the U.S. should be letting in the oppressed and endangered people of Europe, especially Jews, who were desperate to flee the Nazis. There were questions about the U.S. entering into foreign wars. 
And there were questions about the U.S. entering in, into alliances, uh, alliances that were established during the course of World War II that we're now pulling back from. Anyway, all those things carried me into that period and into the book. There was also the fact that my father had uh, been a soldier in the uh, U.S. First Army, um, and all the parents of my friends had been in some way caught up in the war. And so it was very much a war I, I wanted to explore more deeply. Yes. And uh, did you grow up hearing stories about the war? That's always uh, an interesting question because um, that was a generation of men primarily who rarely spoke about it. Until later years, until their their elder years, I found that very few of them were uh, really uh, willing to talk about it. It was a job they had to do. They did their duty. It was in many cases brutal and very violent and horrifying. They had friends who didn't return. They had friends who returned who were drastically altered. And they wanted to get back to their lives and they wanted to get on with their lives and they didn't want to talk about it. But of course, there were uh, TV programs and movies that that came out, and I saw all those when I was young. When movies like Saving Private Ryan came out, the the World War II veterans who were still alive started to open up, and even my father did. Um, but uh, he insisted, you know, we weren't heroes. We just did. We had a job, and we did it. You know, I, I've been reading a bit um, from CNN and other sources about how there's this rise in historical amnesia specifically about the war and the Holocaust um, in America and in European countries mm-hmm. among um, primary school age children. How do you respond to that? And what do you think is going on there? Well, you know, I think uh, it's, it's disheartening. Um, it's not surprising. I mean, there's uh, a level of, of ignorance that people are permitted to have about so many different things. You know, most most younger Americans who didn't grow up with it in some way probably can't tell you much of anything about the Second World War at this point. And uh, the Holocaust, too, starts receding into the background. You know, I've over the years, I've known many Holocaust survivors and uh, lost some family uh, to it as well. It's, you know, somewhat the nature of being a human being that we forget things. We we lose the past. I think that uh, Germany has done a remarkable job of trying to uh, accept responsibility for what happened and for teaching lessons from the Holocaust uh, and from the Second World War as a whole. You know, it's a sad statement that we can't hold on to uh, an awareness of uh, these significant events that shaped the world and that when we forget, they may not get repeated, but similar situations can arise and we may not know how to handle them. And certainly while the Holocaust was unique in its uh, industrialization of killing, it's not unique uh, as a genocide. And genocides will happen again unless we're ready to step forward to prevent them. Yes. And going back to your book, I I think it's so interesting that you saw so many parallels between that period of time and the present, because I feel like that there's this 
false perception sometimes that history is teleological, that it's somehow linear Mm -hmm. and we're progressing. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas we see this constant patterning of behavior. I think that's very interesting. Yeah. You know, we're... We're humans. We're humans whether we were uh, born in 1941 or uh, 1919 when we're aggrieved, uh, when we're part of a nation that is in crisis, when we are uh, economically distressed, uh, we tend to – we seek out scapegoats Um, and if we can find them and we have – uh, demagogues who are willing to blame others uh, and say, "Here, here's the source of your misery. Here is the source of your misery. Go and seek out your enemy and you'll feel better. Well, we're going to repeat the past. You know, if we don't learn the lessons that, you know, that way lies uh, horror and war and grave violence and injustice. You know, in some ways, we have more access to information than ever, yet the study of history is is being taken for granted. And I I think it's Mm -hmm. encouraging in some ways to see educators leverage the technology that they have and the ability to access that information to engage with students. So maybe there is hope in that. But, yeah, Mm -hmm. it is a very scary proposition. Yeah. Well, you know, as I'm not saying anything new to say that technology, social media is a two-edged sword. Uh, We have access to a massive amount of information, but what we don't have are enough trustworthy filters. And one of the things that happens uh, to people who don't study history is that they tend not to have the ability to judge the filters that, that are bringing information to them. And so it is important, and this is perhaps another reason that somebody should make a point of studying history, reading good books, and trying to uh, understand how to interpret the past, because that gives you tools for interpreting other information that comes to you. You know, we need to be skeptical about what we read. So often, I get material forwarded to me over the uh, in that somebody's gleaned on the internet that. It just takes a few steps to, to show that this is something that somebody has made up somewhere along the line and it's you know, totally deceptive. So we need to have the ability not to accept things at their face value, to look into things a little bit more deeply, check out facts, analyze, interpret. These are all skills that come from studying the past uh, and they're so valuable no matter what you do. No matter whether you're uh, in business, even raising a family, uh, you need to understand where things come from in your family. And that's, that's uh, also a form of history. Do you think that there is a connection between studying history and peacemaking? Absolutely. If you want to have an understanding about relations with people with whom uh, you are in either in conflict or in danger of having a conflict with, you need to understand where those conflicts arise, why they began, why they continue into the present. And you can't simply say, oh, that's the past. Let's forget about it. You know, I can remember uh, years ago, uh, I was uh, traveling in Poland 
and there were some uh, Germans who were on a train traveling through Poland uh, that, that I was overhearing their conversation, and they were talking about how they don't understand why the Poles still hate them, that uh, that was war and that was in the past. Well, you have to understand what the origins of that hatred are and begin to seek ways to find reconciliation. Reconciliation doesn't come about by ignoring the past. Reconciliation comes about by understanding the truths of the past, acknowledging the pain and hurt that can be left over from the past, and working together to heal those injuries that are left over from the past. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, Sarah, it's been great. I really appreciate your interest. That was historian and journalist Mark Wortman talking with Sarah Holtz. Mark's latest book is called 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, A Divided America in a World at War. You can hear Sarah's entire interview with Mark Wortman at our website, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, the co-author of a book called The Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft and World Order, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Sarah Holtz, and we're moving into part two of our three-part program about the role of learning history to peacemaking. Learning from your mistakes is difficult and often painful, especially when those mistakes impact an entire community. The ancient Greeks acknowledged this idea early on, and rather than sidestep their mistakes, they leaned into tragedy. Dr. Charles E. Dell believes Americans should take note of this philosophy. He's a senior fellow and visiting scholar at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney in Australia, and he co-authored a book with Hal Brands called The Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft and World Order. Here Dr. E. Dell explains the book's central idea to Sarah Holtz, something he calls the tragic sensibility. We start the book really with a puzzle. Uh, because if you think about the ancient Greeks, if you kind of send your mind back to high school or college whenever you were forced to read those Greek tragedies, there's this puzzle that uh, comes out of it because the ancient Greeks, really the ancient Athenians, are such a high-achieving culture. Uh, they have a navy that dominates the seas. They have an empire that straddles the known world in the Mediterranean. They have a relatively liberal, certainly a much more liberal uh, political system than anyone around uh, which is the pride of their citizens and which we still take inspiration from today. And yet, at the heart of their civilization, they placed tragedy. Uh, they had 
tragic productions, plays uh, that they subsidized through the state coffers uh, that they had all citizens go out to, and everyone would sit on the hillside and watch the great and the good fall uh, due to errors, due to ignorance, due to their own hubris. And it was the Greek understanding that the best way to prevent tragedy was to think constantly about it, to keep comfort with one's worst fears, and that watching this would scare them. I mean, would really scare the bejesus out of them in some ways and propel them as a community to take actions that they wouldn't otherwise undertake to make sure that their own society did not experience such an end. And the interesting part is that even though they were willing to keep comfort with their worst fears, think about how bad things could get, stare disaster in the face, the ancient Athenians were by no means a depressive people. In fact, they were very optimistic, forward-looking people. That's really what we're trying to capture with this idea of a tragic sensibility. From little that I know about studying tragedy in school, um, I do remember that there's usually a protagonist, and that protagonist typically has a fatal flaw or something that leads him or her to a terrible outcome. But these outcomes are largely avoidable. Um, So what's the importance of that idea, and how do you see that playing out in the present day? I think you've basically nailed it, that there is generally a tragic flaw in the heroines and the heroes uh, throughout this book that leads them to not understand the circumstances in which they find themselves. Now, of course, as an audience member, or even just as a reader of this play, you can see what's happening. You can see the storm clouds gathering, and you know that they are struggling in the face of an unknown present where they don't have all the facts on hand to make sense. Um, And yet, uh, you know, I I think we come to a slightly different interpretation in some ways than what you laid out, uh, in that this is not just the gods mucking around in humans' lives, and that we can't have any volition, we can't have any control possibly, because what seems to be celebrated over and over in these plays, which makes them actually, I think, acts of celebration, not kind of miserable, depressing plays that you're supposed to watch, is that people are willing to take action even in the face of an unknown future, even when they don't necessarily know that the outcome will be great, but they're willing to take actions to defend the values that they think are most important, even if they fall. That's what's the message. And so in some ways, yes, the fatal flaw uh, is there, but Aristotle, who wrote about the ancient tragedy, said the key to this was this concept of catharsis, right? That you would see your heroes fall, it would scare the living daylights out of you, and that would purify the audience and make them think, what did they need to wrestle with as a community? What did they need to think about as a society in order to stave off such an end for themselves? You also highlight the Peloponnesian War as kind of a turning point in this history. What do you think the war teaches us about um, this term that you described, this tragic sensibility? Well, absolutely right. Uh, You know, the Peloponnesian War is, of course, uh, the first or probably the second Uh, account of history, historical writing in the Western canon, Uh, but it's actually written kind of like a play, and we make that argument, right? You have leading actors, you have speeches, you have acts, uh, you have dramatic sequencing uh, for this. And these speeches are meant to impart certain lessons to the audience. And I, I think the takeaway here is that the Greeks, who, again, thought constantly uh, about tragedy, about how bad things could get, even they could not avoid it. And that's 
clear when you read the history of the Peloponnesian War, which takes place in the 5th century uh, BC, really starting in 432 BC, which is at the same time that people are watching these plays. And in fact, many of the plays that we think about and celebrate today are written during the war uh, itself. Right. And why do we continue to read um, the history of the Peloponnesian War today? I mean, I read it in high school. I imagine you read it as a classics major. Why does it still resonate with us? We continue to read it, uh, I think, because it is a classic. I mean, look, the the most arrogant statement of all time is by its author, Thucydides, who says that I, I, I mean this book to be of interest, but to be a lesson to statesmen and citizens in the future and for all time. And what he tries to do in the book is talk about the causes of war, the effects of war, what the effects of war and a long-standing war are on a democratic polity and its citizens. And so throughout history, uh, this has been held up as, in fact, the first not only kind of work on the origins of war, uh, but about how democratic polities fight wars uh, and the coarsening effects that fighting long wars can have on a democratic state. And I would like at this point to kind of shift focus um, away from the Athenians and towards your discussion of the United States, because you do spend um, much of the book discussing the United States and its relationship with other countries. Um, And in the U.S., I feel like there's often this false narrative um, when we're learning about history. um, And it's one of teleology that we're always moving towards greater progress. Um, Do you think that idea in itself is ahistorical? I don't know if I think it's completely ahistorical, right? This is the Steven Pinker argument about the Enlightenment, that things uh, through all their ups and downs are progressing to a more stable, more prosperous world. Um, You know, President Obama, I think, really encapsulated this in that very famous quote that he had, that if you closed your eyes and wished and thought, when would you want to live at any point in history to have a healthier more prosperous and more stable life, you would undoubtedly choose the present. I tend to think that's correct. But that doesn't mitigate the fact that we are watching uh, in contemporary times uh, the foundations of the order that we live in being undermined, being challenged. Uh, And simultaneously, and this goes to Stephen Pinker's argument, it's true. We do live in a more technologically, more prosperous society. We also had to live through two world wars in the 20th century that got us to where we are. So I think, uh, you know, your question about teleology is really a question about uh, do things move on a straight line or do they tend to get punctured with enormous ups and downs? And it is a real Greek lesson, but I think it's a real contemporary charge, and this is one that we try to make in the book, that to think that your own time is immune from breakdowns of the international order uh, is a profoundly ahistorical way of thinking uh, about things. In fact, almost every age, uh, if you kind of glance back, some of the leading thinkers, uh, this is true right before the Thirty Years' War breaks out, which we discussed. This is true before the Napoleonic Wars break out, before World War I breaks out, famously in the words of Norman Angel, that it would be impractical for the great powers to go to war together in 1910 because their economies are so intertwined. In every age, the leading thinkers make the point that the foundations are becoming more stable as, in fact, it is crumbling underneath their feet. And what we really see in the present, and this is where the book drives towards, is that you can really see the warning lights beginning to flash on the dashboard of really 
what are the drivers of international conflict, but really of great power competition, and in fact, great power war. Right. That's really interesting. And I love that metaphor of the warning lights on the dashboard. I'm wondering, in terms of uh, World War II, where do you think that fit in with uh, within this history of the U.S. either forming or um, failing to form a tragic sensibility? Well, World War II is a fascinating example because we make the argument in the book that not only are kind of the recurrence of catastrophic breakups of the international order more the norm than they are the exception, uh, and that's really the bad news. Uh, but there is a good news story here, too, uh, because for those that have lived through them, uh, for those that know how bad things could get, in some ways, the most stable international orders that have been built come directly after those giant crackups. So you think about the 30 years war that ravages Europe. Well, that gives way to the Westphalian uh, peace settlement, which basically ushers in 100 years of great power stability. You think about the 15 years of warfare of the Napoleonic Wars that gives way to the Concert of Europe, which is 100 years of peace. You think about World War One, and that gives way to the interwar years, right, which is the counterexample here. Uh, because while the argument is that if you are viscerally uh, scarred by, you have personally experienced uh, these upheavals, you're willing to take actions that might not be natural in order to prevent them happening again. There is, of course, a different reaction that you can have. You can be so scarred by what happened that you're willing to not deal with it again or just put your head in the sand. Now, that, that is a ham-handed way of describing the interwar years, but that is, in fact, the process that set in motion the lead up to World War II. Now, you had asked about World War II, so that's kind of the prehistory. The anti-history, though, is quite interesting because almost all the leading statesmen uh, that experienced World War II specifically designed the international order in the wake of World War II to be a rejection of what they thought were the wrong lessons that were drawn in that preceding period. So if we think about the great efforts and the great successes, really, of the post-war era, they're all informed by that logic. Right. And um, I mean, to, to move forward uh, quite a few years, uh, you also identify the Cold War and the end of the Cold War as kind of a turning point in this context as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, you know, we make the major point that uh, most of us are extraordinarily lucky that we haven't experienced one of these horrible breakups, right? Uh, World War II was 75 years ago, three quarters of a century ago. But the Cold War uh, ended uh, more than 30 years ago. But as the memory has faded from that, as the Soviet Union, which helped to drive that uh, constant thinking about what you had to do uh, in order to stave off another challenge to this, has gone away, the logic, uh, really the emotion maybe even behind that logic, seems to have faded with it. And so we find ourselves in a period now where it seems almost an impossibility to imagine not only a great power war, or in some ways a return to great power rivalry, uh, but it seems unfeasible that America would find itself in that position. Uh, and so as that memory has faded, so too have the efforts uh, that have been required to, I would argue, uh, Helen and I would argue, to stave off those conditions. These days, we seem to view tragedy in this kind of knee-jerk way, that it's, it's simply depressing when something tragic happens. How do you think we can move towards finding inspiration in tragedy 
rather than just finding it depressing? Uh, it's a great question, Sarah. And, uh, you know, in, in some sense, I think we closed the book uh, with the image of it would be impractical to cram all of American society into theater benches and show them horribly scary plays. That's not what we're really advocating for. Uh, although uh, we do think it's important that Americans get more cognizant of the fact that breakups are as much the norm as they are the exception. And the best way to understand this, short of living through this, is to read history. Uh, but I, I do think, uh, you know, your question actually touches on something of a deeper level about how do you deal with this? Because in some ways to open the newspaper is to be overwhelmed and sometimes to be very, very depressed. Uh, we all know what the news is like. They don't really celebrate uplifting stories. And what we say are a couple of different things. Uh, and the first is you need to be realistic about where things are. Uh, and where things are headed. And, you know, we already talked about the metaphor of the warning lights lighting up on the dashboard. We think that that is true, despite the fact that the world is generally more healthy and prosperous uh, than it's been ever before. Uh, if we think about kind of the democratic recession that's happening, the advance of authoritarian states, you need to be realistic about what's happening and that historically, uh, this is a pretty bad combination. But even if you're realistic, you need to be careful not to fall into the trap of, you know, this is an argument against complacency. Understand what's going on, but don't fall into the trap of fatalism, that there's nothing that we can do about this because the gods are just mucking around or because our adversaries are overwhelming and powerful. There's plenty that we can do. We are not powerless to take action in the face of these things. Well, Charles, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for having me on. This was a great conversation, I thought. If you'd like to hear more of Dr. Edel's interview with Sarah Holtz, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment from New Orleans, Dr. Jeffrey Derensborg will talk about how the U.S. has a long history of erasing indigenous narratives when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. And I'm Paul Ingalls today, along with Sarah Holtz, presenting our program about the role of learning history to peacemaking. The city of New Orleans celebrated its tricentennial in 2018, an occasion commemorated with fireworks, museum exhibits, and of course parades. Historical commemoration typically fails to encompass perspectives outside of the dominant narrative, and the tricentennial was no exception. We're going to hear next from Dr. Jeffrey Derensberg, a tribal council person of the Atakipa Ishak Nation, who decided to confront this shortcoming. 
He started a zine, or independent print publication, on native culture. The U.S. has a long history of erasing indigenous narratives, and here Dr. Derensburg explains to Sarah Holtz how he and his collaborators have chosen to intervene. Well, our zine, uh, Bobancha, is still a place, indigenous culture from New Orleans, kind of grew out of the friendship I have with my co-editor, Ozone 504. We're both uh, mixed ethnicity, native, plus something else people. We're both like uh, also 40-something aging punk rockers, and uh, this kind of grows out of our frustration with the celebrations leading up to the tricentennial of New Orleans. So New Orleans is always in our zine in quotes. So the tricentennial of New Orleans and our desire to have some sort of cultural counterweight to that. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could, uh, for those outside of New Orleans and outside of Louisiana, could you explain the title of the zine? Well, Bobancha Still a Place is our attempt to remain slightly uncolonized. We say that as long as people still use the word Bulbancha for this place, it is not completely colonized. And that is the original name. It is the only one of the native names that have come down to us from the pre-colonial era. And it means the place of foreign languages or the place of other tongues. Tunican, Biloxi, Choctaw, Ishak, or Ishakoi, Homa, and so a lot of these people who would be trading would have to speak a language together, which would be Mobilian usually, which is known in slang as Yama. And so it became known as a place, hey, if you're going there, you're going to meet other people who speak other languages. And that we always emphasize that that means that the original native place, Bulbancha, was already a cosmopolitan place. It, people often speak of how cosmopolitan New Orleans is, but that route did not arrive with ships from across the Atlantic. It was already kind of a place where cultures interacted. Why did you decide, I guess, on a zine as your medium? Well, this has to do with my co-editor and I also being aged punk rockers. Zines are often a way for an underrepresented voice to get out. And we put out this zine and people have enjoyed reading about this other perspective on the city, a native perspective. And some of them have been stunned to know that there were still members of uh, Louisiana's indigenous First Nations here. Uh, not only that, but also natives from all over uh, Turtle Island, including you know North America, Canada, and those from south of the so-called border uh, who live here as well. One other thing that I noticed about um, the zine is the prevalence of poetry between the two issues. What do you think the role of poetry is with the project? Well, when we think about a lot of the ways that we preserved our culture is through songs and through stories. There are two really well-known Native poets who are in the first issue, Rain Prudhomme Cranford, uh, who teaches at University of Calgary, and Carolyn Dunn, uh, who is a playwright and professor in Oklahoma. and But there are people with backgrounds in Louisiana natives, um, their families one or two generations ago from here. And I just thought that poetry can tell stories sometimes uh, by, you know, through imagery or whatever, that it's kind of a very traditional way. 
There are, of course, some great native novelists, but I'm really excited more often personally to read uh, native poets I know that kind of excite me, and and that's why there's poetry in it. Very cool. And um, along those same lines, the, the second issue of the zine is centered around language, um, which seems like an intentional choice. What do you think uh, the importance of is with language in propagating indigenous culture? I think the language has a connection to the ancestors and their ways of thinking about things that are in the language. And we have indigenous words around us all the time. In American English, we don't always think about it. I mean, even simple words like pecan or raccoon or, or whatever. Um, and it's something that can really unite communities and give one a deeper appreciation sort of of the worldview of the ancestors. And in, in, in Ishakoi, which is uh, my tribal language, uh, when they say Happy New Year, uh, the word is Happy Big French Day. And what I like about that is that it means that our concepts of time are not the same concepts as the Europeans. So for us, it was just, oh, yeah, French people think this day is important. So, hey, happy day. But, you know, maybe a year celebrated that way. It wasn't as important to us. And I like to make this point in relationship to the so-called tricentennial of this area that that's not a significant number at all to us. Um, it's not a long period of time for us. Definitely. Um, and in talking about language, we're seeing an effort, you know, in places like Minnesota, and then um, you wrote about in Australia, too, of changing official place names. Yeah, I, I do like the concept of reverting uh, place names back to their pre-colonial ones. And something that you see native people do a lot here is to refer to the place as Bulbancha. Uh, I, you know, address letters with it, uh, you know, as my return address. Um, I, for example, live in a neighborhood now that's known as Faubourg Saint-Jean or Faubourg Saint-Jean. I refer to it as Faubourg Choupic because I refuse to acknowledge that Bayou Choupic is named Bayou Saint-Jean. It's a a sense of saying that, like, you know what, we have the dignity to preserve our names. Like, you do, you cannot tell us what we can call our own spaces. And it's a traditional thing that colonists have done is to deliberately rename places and, of course, deliberately renaming people, uh, which is something that is ongoing. Um, even now, I heard of a recent federal court case where... Uh, asylum seeker from south of the so-called border had her child taken away. It was adopted by a white family, and they, they even changed the child's name to a more Anglo-Saxon-sounding name. And that is a typical example of you know cultural genocide. And although there are many native place names around this area, things like you know Mississippi itself or Chapatulas, which is a major street here in town along the river, we think that there's something especially in the name Bulbancha that captures something about this place that the name New Orleans is not. Bulbancha captures a number of different types of people coming to a place and seeking to trade and interact and get what they need out of it and encounter other people. Yeah, and that, that is 
totally what I gleaned as well, just this sense of, of connection between people despite geography or, you know, any kind of linguistic or cultural difference. There's just this sense of connection. Yeah. That's, I think when people are dealing with the same issues, then they sort of naturally bond, even though maybe pre-colonial times, the tribes thought of themselves as being really different, but maybe post-colonial started to see like, hey, they're, just as there is such a thing as European culture in a broad sense, there is also such a thing as native culture. And that makes sense, I guess. <laughs> that's kind of what we're about. What does it mean to decolonize history? It means to tell it from the point of view of people other than powerful white people. So it means that people who are lionized as heroes are not heroes to us. Or things that are thought of as important events might not be that important to us. Um, or they might be important to us in a different way. Um, so around here, we always have a relationship with history. There's a lot of people who come here, have historical tours, and oftentimes the sort of tourist history leaves out important aspects. So uh, our World War II Museum here in town is a, you know, there's a campaign, an advertising campaign that's called the Arsenal of Democracy about um, the building of, you know, this uh, war effort. And I mean, my native grandfather fought in World War II, uh, but Arsenal of Democracy it was not because when he came back to Louisiana, he could not legally vote. So there was no democracy for him. He had the same voting rights here as he would have had in Nazi Germany. So... Things like that is what it means to decolonize. It means to say, like, look, this is not the only way to think about this. And so if we understand them in the typical way, like I was taught in history class growing up, we're going to understand them from a certain set of priorities and a certain set of values that I do not hold and that I think many other people should not hold as well. Could you tell us about your experiences teaching history in Louisiana schools? I did teach history here um, in high school and also taught uh, English and special education. And the thing about history is that so often it does not include very much from the point of view of either native people or enslaved people or from people of color in general and the general narrative of American history. And then for some of us in the zine, especially those of us who are Louisiana Creole, I always like to put in elements of people who are both African and Native, uh, which I am. Uh, and so I think that that's an untold story. And it's kind of remarkable when we think of the things that we teach students about, say, a westward expansion and so-called pioneers people who went into places that were already very well populated and destroyed uh, ways of life and trying to understand American history from the Native point of view means that you kind of have to teach some things that are not necessarily going to be on the state-mandated exams. Um, and that's always a tension because the, the students need to pass those exams. At the same time, there's also a commitment one has to have to the truth at some point where one has to say, you know, there are things about this that are not 
being told that you need to think about that, you know, about, for example, think of how influential the era of Reconstruction is in the South and the formation of Jim Crow and everything. And in Louisiana, history in high school begins at 1849 and skips the Civil War. So that seems very deliberate attempt to avoid discussion of some of the uglier aspects of American history that passed through this place. And I think that it's important that the people in this country know a broader story about what happened, a story that encompasses more types of people of every sort. And that helps them not only get a better picture of the past, but also a better picture of current situations that people endure now. There's also such an element of, of power imbalance in continuing to structure things that way as well. True. That is that is so true that people who have often not had a voice um, now, I think that there is a sense that you can see more Native culture and be aware of it. Maybe something that started with the American Indian movement, you know, around late 60s and early 70s, just to put that back into American consciousness, which hadn't been the case since the conclusion of the Indian Wars in the 1890s. And now we have, you know, famous Native authors and celebrities, you know, and Natives on TV, you know, people like Adam Beach or whatever, Wes Studi and uh, the new poet laureate of the United States, Joy Harjo. There are people like that who are now more visible, and that's a great thing because they've maybe encourage people to consider, hey, maybe there's some some culture here that you might be interested in, even if you're not Native. There might be something here that you can relate to and maybe should have a look at. And I think that's a good thing. What else would you like to see in American curricula that is not represented? First, I would like to people to know that there is so much culture that exists outside of mainstream culture, and that has always been a thing. Also, people have such little understanding of Native people. Native people were not primitive. We had very complex societies. We had very technologically advanced societies, definitely the most advanced agriculture on earth. And I think that people did not really understand how well organized our societies were, how advanced they were, things like diplomacy, at things such as sustainability. And all of these are things that are very relevant now as we face uh, the realities of environmental destruction and climate change. To think about that, there was a time when people lived in a much more sustainable way, and they weren't just living primitively, so to speak. Uh, I think people often didn't understand Native values. Uh, when someone says, well, the Native population was very primitive here, you know, I hear people say this, and I I say, okay, but where were the homeless people and where were their hungry people? You know, there's an idea that Europeans brought that not everyone deserves to have basics of life. And I can say they believe that thoroughly because they believed in Europe and they've created a society like that here that did not exist here before. And I do think those are things that are important to teach, not only for a correct understanding of history, kind of correct understanding of our own society, but also it gives marginalized people a way to see that they are not alone. And when I was growing up, I was never taught about these things. But then when you go to college and stuff, you find out, you know what? 
there are people who noticed these things and they wrote about them. And there's stuff out there that you could learn about it. And that's, uh, that's a really good thing. And that's, I guess, a large part of what our zine project is about. Yeah, it reminds me of the quote, I think it's on the back of the first issue, nothing about us without us. Yeah, nothing about us without us. There was a long time where no stories or anything about Native people were told by Native people. And it makes a huge difference when the stories are told by the people that they're about. There is a, a complete difference of perspective and a difference of emphasis and nuance that you get similar to how any person could just have someone else tell a story about them and might not capture all the things that they understood about it themselves going through it. And that is a big thing now. And there are Native people around to tell those stories. Something I think any person can do wherever they live is to try to learn about the indigenous nations of their area and not only reading, but maybe if someone is speaking or whatnot, or if someone is working on a project where the indigenous people could be relevant, find them. It's not that hard uh, if it's what you want to do. And all it takes, you know, if you find one native person in the area, believe me, no matter how obscure this area is, if you find one, they know another one. Uh, and if you want native people to be involved in something, reach out. Uh, there's never an excuse not to. And that's something I hope people will think about is the native aspects of so many of the things we celebrate that those things had an impact on native people and native people might have been involved with it. And that's something that uh, I urge people to emphasize not only where I live in Bulbancha, but anywhere in North America. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for speaking with me. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you for having me on. That's Dr. Jeffrey Derensberg, who says he's the editor who's not a chief of the zine. Bulbancha is still a place, indigenous culture from New Orleans. Go to our website to hear the entire interviews that Sarah Holtz conducted with each guest. That's peacetalksradio.com. Peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. See photos of our guests, read and share partial transcripts. Sign up for our podcast, order CDs, or make a donation to keep this program going into the future. All at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you, and also like Betsy Christensen, who donated in memory of her parents, John and Audrey. Or chiropractor Ruben Ramirez and his Spinal Health and Movement Center in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Support also from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Tides Fund and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Days Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Sarah Holtz, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.